I don't know uh, about you, but I find I do this a lot, and I find there's actually more people I know that do this, but do you ever find yourself overcomplicating simple things? Yeah? I got a big yes over here. We, we tend to overcomplicate simple things, right? We make them more complicated, more difficult than they need to be. And I know for me, sometimes when that happens, what I end up doing is not doing the thing because I've overcomplicated it, right? Um, let me help you understand simple, all right? Simple is, think of it this way. When you think about life and what, what most people are dealing with, everyone either is probably dealing with either feeling like they're overweight or need to be more healthy. So simple is, and we all know this, you eat less calories than you burn, right? Simple. Is it easy to do? No, it's difficult. Or think about your finances, right? Spend, mo- spend less than you make. Simple math. Is it easy to do in our day and age? Not really. We overcomplicate these things. And even when it comes to our faith, we tend to do this. And, and I'm sure for many of us in this room, this is a, a, an area of, of struggle for us. And we're going to look at prayer today, and I think it's one of those disciplines that we tend to overcomplicate, and so we end up not doing it consistently. Now, let me be clear. When I say that prayer can be simple... I don't mean it's unimportant, right? Just because it's something simple doesn't mean it's unimportant. I want to read you a quote from a book. Uh, Tim Keller, before he passed a number of years ago, wrote a book on prayer. And in the book, in the introduction, he sort of shares briefly how he discovered prayer in the last half of his life. He was older in ministry when he actually figured out prayer. And there's a guy who was mightily used by God understood the importance of prayer, but really didn't really get it figured out till later in life. At this point in his life, uh, he was married. His wife had been struggling with an ongoing chronic disease. Tim himself had been diagnosed with cancer. And, and these are just in the days just after 9-11 in 2001 in New York City. His wife, Kathy, put it to him this way in the book. She says, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss Well, if we don't pray together to God, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it just slip our minds. I don't know, but I think Kathy Keller has some great insight for us in that little analogy. You know, prayer might be simple, but it's not unimportant. It's it's been something that's been around my life, in my life, since my earliest days. I mean, I remember growing up with, you know, family devotions around the table after breakfast. And we had a little bench, and I would often lie down on that bench, and I wasn't really paying attention. But I experienced this every single morning with my mom and dad. I remember before bedtime with mom. She would come, she would read me a Bible story, and then we'd, she'd pray. And, and that was one of those times when I asked Jesus in my heart. I remember growing up in, in the church I grew up in, we had a breaking of bread service every Sunday morning a service that was around the Lord's table every Sunday, and prayer was a huge part of that. I remember 
in high school, we had a ministry, part of our high school ministry, we called Snacks, S-N-A-C-S. It was after church on Sunday nights. It stood for Sunday night after church sharing. And we as high schoolers, we'd get together with our youth pastor, and we'd, we'd share prayer requests, and we'd pray for each other, and then we'd have snacks. Prayer was a big part of that. And then I remember my, for the year I was past, uh, interning at our home church, and part of my internship, I, I got through the pastoral prayer one Sunday. And uh, we always prayed for the missionary of the week. And I'll always remember praying for our missionary that week and praying for the, all the missionaries, especially the Baldwins. But all I heard was bald ones. The bald ones. I'll always remember that. Like prayer has been in and around my life all my life. And I still find it a struggle to keep consistent all the time. So what is prayer? Like what, what is this thing we call prayer? At its most basic, I like this definition. Prayer is intentional communication with God. It's intentional communication with God. Now, it's communication, but it's also encounter. Keller goes on in his book, and he says this, prayer is both conversation and encounter with God. We must know the awe of praising his glory, the intimacy of finding his grace, and the struggle of asking his help, all of which can lead us to know the spiritual reality of his presence. And my my hope today is to help us see that by considering the Lord's Prayer in Luke we're going to see how this simple communication actually becomes an encounter with the living God. And I'll suggest to you that prayer is meant to be simple, prayer is meant to be persistent, and prayer is meant to be bold. And in this communication, we trust that the Father will actually answer according to His will. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 11. And and I do hope you bring your Bible from week to week. It's good to have it. Or if you have it on your phone, that's great just to follow along. We're in Luke chapter 11. This is the, the Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Now, when we actually quote it together as a congregation or any kind of group that qu- quotes it, you, we usually quote it from Matthew. Matthew's is a little fuller. There's going to be some pieces of lines you're going to say, that's not, it's missing this. Dave, you skipped over that. It's not in the Luke passage, but it's in the Matthew passage. And we're going to see, too, that as Jesus praises, this is a prayer we are free to pray, and he encourages us to pray this, But I think it's also a model of prayer for us and helps us know how to pray. He teaches the prayer, and then he actually goes on to explain it with a few little parables. Before we dive in, let me read the whole passage for you. We're looking at Luke chapter 11 from 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say... Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we also for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened 
What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Father, as we look into this prayer, as we look into what your Son has taught us, would you open our eyes, open our hearts to hear it and to see it as you intended? Don't allow us to glance over it because it's so familiar to us. Would you teach it to us anew? Enlighten us by your Spirit this morning, Lord, we pray. Amen. So here we have Jesus. It says he's, he's praying. He's gone praying again, and, which is, we know is his regular habit. We find Jesus throughout the Gospels praying at his baptism, praying before choosing his disciples. He's praying at the wedding in Cana or after the 72 return from spreading the good news or in front of Lazarus's tomb. And of course, the high priestly prayer in the garden on the night he is arrested. And there's many more recorded instances of Jesus praying and, and so many hundreds, probably thousands more where it's not even recorded for us. Jesus saw prayer as a habit. It's something he knew he needed to do. And something we need to recognize is that, that the prayers Jesus prayed give us insight into his nature, into his heart and his mission on earth. Far more important than where he prayed, when he prayed, what position he prayed, is the fact that he prayed. Jesus prayed. Jesus is God, and yet we find him communing with the Father, praying to the Father. So if Jesus, our Savior, needs to pray, how much more do we need to pray? Here we have the disciples who are watching him all this time, and, and after he finishes praying this time, they, they're like, can, can you teach us to pray? Like John taught his disciples how to pray. Teach us how to pray. So Jesus got his uh, flip chart out and his markers and started giving them three points on how to pray. Now, sadly, that's how we tend to do it, right? We, we want to we start praying, so what do we do? We, we go and find a book to read about it. We go and study how, what does it mean and where, where we do it. No, it's not true. Jesus didn't pull out a flip chart, not just because he didn't have them, but because that's not what he did. He says, pray like this. He actually is going to model it for them. Now, let me say something before we dive into this. There's a tension when putting together a sermon series, right? When you're putting together a sermon series like, like we do, are you going to go deep? Wait, deep? <laughs> or wide, right? So we're this series, we're going wide. We're kind of covering a lot, all of Luke, from Christmas to Easter. And so we're having to glance over some things pretty quick. And I, I honestly believe, like this Lord's Prayer, each one of these lines is a sermon in itself. And so I'm going to miss things you think I should have said, uh, or I'm, I'll say things you think I shouldn't have said. But regardless, just know that we're not going to be able to cover and dive as deep in this as we really could and would love to. Maybe another, another time we would do that. The first thing I want us to see from the prayer itself is this, that there is simplicity in prayer. Now, we've all probably recited this prayer many times in our lives. In fact, I'm curious how many of you grew up praying this in school. It's quite a few, yeah. Now, that tells me a little bit about your age or that, what kind of school you went to. But if you're like me, you prayed it in public school until 1988 when it was removed from the schools. But this is, a, this is a prayer we pray corporately. We, we prayed together even last week 
together. And, and one of the beauties of this prayer is its simplicity. The fact that we used to teach kids in public school to pray this every morning after the, after the national anthem. There's a simplicity in here. When we pray it together, we encourage one another. We remind each other that we're not in this alone. And when we pray it individually, it becomes a model for us. It becomes a primer. It helps us to know what to pray and how to pray. One thing that we're going to talk about a little later on is how we can use the Lord's Prayer as a jumping off point when you don't know what to pray. Really what that looks like is that you, you say it in small chunks, right? So by yourself, if you're sitting there, I don't know what to pray today. Start with this to say, Father in heaven. And then talk, pray to God, talk to God about what that means to you. Spend a little time just sharing with him how that affects you in your life. Hallowed be your name, right? Lord, I want to honor you in all that I say and do. Your name is higher and above any other name. And then go on through the prayer in that way. It doesn't have to be complex. It's a conversation. When Jesus introduces this, he says something. He says to them, when you pray. Right? He doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. He's expecting us to pray. And I was saying how we often will go and try to look for books or learn about something instead of just doing it. Like I think prayer is one of those things where it's better caught than taught. We're better off just doing it. We're going to learn more by just doing it. One person said that prayer is a practice that's better understood in the closet than in the library. Sometimes we need to, this is one of those, one of those disciplines, we need to just do it. Just start doing it. So let's, let's walk through this a little bit and let's see what some of these little phrases have for us. First he says, Father, right? This is like Abba, Daddy. There's a familial feel to this. You know, it's not a formal father. It's more like a son or daughter to a father. But be careful that the familial does not become flippant, right? Now, I understand, too, that this idea of God as our father is easier to grasp when we've had a good father ourselves. It's more difficult for, for some of us who, who haven't had a good father figure. And we, ha we have to reconcile the idea that God is father. We have to recognize he is our father. He is our perfect father. Hallowed be your name. We're showing reverence for the name of God. It's respect. Now, we're not asking God to sanctify his own name. We're basically reminding ourselves of who God is and who I am. Or as my friend Phil says, it's recognizing who I am in light of the great I am. It's recognizing who I am in the light of the great I am. We have to be careful, too, with this hallowed be your name. It's another reminder for us to not make God into our image, right? He's made us in his image. And so often we want to see God how we want to see God. And that's not how it works. He made us. It's not vice versa. Your kingdom come. See, we're asking for, we're submitting to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus in his kingdom. Not just in the kingdom to come, but in the kingdom as it is today. I mean, if you read the Gospels with this kingdom mindset, you'll see how often Jesus speaks of the kingdom. In fact, we talk about Jesus doing the Father's kingdom agenda. It's what he's here to do is to, to introduce and bring in the kingdom. Often he's talked about this idea that the kingdom is near to them. That they're already, it's already here. And we talk about the kingdom being the, 
the now and the not yet. Right? The now as in the kingdom is here. When Jesus was here on the earth, he instituted the kingdom in some regards. But as we look at what he teaches about the kingdom, we see very quickly that the kingdom is not how it's meant to be. It's going to be different. It's going to come in some more fullness eventually. That's the not yet. And so praying your kingdom come is a way of saying, Jesus, like, we want to live in the fullness of your kingdom now. And that's part of our sanctification is trying to be kingdom residents in the here and now as we long for and anticipate the kingdom to come. Got to keep moving. Okay, give us this day, give us each day our daily bread. This is a request for our current, our, our immediate needs. You're not, we're not asking for food for the week or the month or the year, although for a lot of us, that's what we have in our cabinets, right? For the most part, we don't have the need of praying from food each and every day. But see, this is a request that's very much in line with the nature of God. This is how he cared for the Israelites in the desert in Exodus, remember? They were grumbling, and what did he do? He provided manna for them each and every day. And he said, go gather enough for today, but not too much, because it's going to go bad. It's going to go maggoty. Except for on the Friday, then you could buy, buy enough. You'd go gather enough for two days for your family, and it would last for two days. But God taught them to rely on him for their food each and every day, our daily bread. It's something one of the Proverbs writers wrote about. The idea of giving me enough, but not too much and not too little. Proverbs 30, uh, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, give me enough for my day that I don't curse you because I don't have enough food. Or don't give me too much that I don't forget who you are. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, I don't know if you've recognized this when you recite the Lord's Prayer. But did you notice it's a corporate prayer? It's a prayer that we pray together. It's an us an our prayer, as opposed to a me and my prayer. It's like Jesus saying, hey, when you come together as a family, pray this together. And it's interesting how often I've seen God answer prayer through his people because of what they've heard in a prayer request. How often have, have needs gone unmet because someone wasn't able to bring it forward? But when someone says, you know, I've got this, this need in my life, and they bring the request humbly to a group, that group prays about it, and someone's like, actually, I know someone. I know someone who can, who can do that for you, who can fill that need for you. I would encourage you, don't think about that person fulfilling that need. Recognize that as an answer to prayer. God put that person to hear that request. Sometimes and often, God uses his own people to answer the prayers of his people. Verse 4, forgive us our sins. This is the idea of repentance, Right? This is a, an honest and clear confession of sin. It's a 180-degree turn. So when, you, when you're repenting, you're, you're turning 180 degrees from that. Here's my sin. Well, I'm going to turn away from my sin. And as you're turning away, you're turning to Jesus. 
You're turning your back on your sin. Forgive us our sins. Now, sometimes it's God and it's only God we need to ask forgiveness from, but there's sometimes a need for us to ask someone else for forgiveness. Someone we've sinned against. This takes putting ourselves in their shoes. Helping, to under, helping us ourselves understand what they experienced in this situation. Sometimes we don't even believe we're at fault, but they've experienced it in a certain way, and, and it may be necessary for us to go and apologize, to confess that sin so that the church can move ahead. It's acknowledging even a perception of sin. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. It's imperative for us to recognize that when we have been forgiven, that we need to forgive others. In the sense that Jesus is using it here as a monetary sense, but it really is about just sin in general. I mean, the reality is forgiving others should be easy when we recognize what we've been forgiven from. What's your perception of how forgiven you are? I mean, that, that's how much you should forgive. If, you, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been forgiven from death to life. That's pretty huge. Whatever you've experienced at the hands of someone else, it may actually go against the law of the land, in which case, you know, actions have consequences. I'm not saying to ignore those kind of things. There's an element where we need to forgive the sin as best we can letting natural consequences occur. And then there's the request, lead us not into temptation. We're asking the Father for spiritual protection. See, God doesn't tempt us himself. It's our own evil desires, as James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and, the, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. I've heard people speak about how, you know, I was, Satan really tempted me this week to do something. And, and, and it seems like it's a good thing to say, but I've also kept hearing them say the same thing. I thought, you know, here's the problem. You're putting your sin on Satan you're not taking personal responsibility for your sin. And, and I, I know Satan is very real, and I really don't want to talk about him, but he's very real. But he's also not behind every rock. James tells us it's our own evil, our own evil desires that causes us to be lured and enticed into sin. But there's good news in this. There's good news. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Whatever you are tempted by, you are not the first person to ever have that temptation. You are not the only person probably in this room who has that temptation. Don't feel like you are and don't believe that lie. But it says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Isn't that reassuring? When you're being tempted, God gives you a way out. For you, is first is to recognize it's there, and second is to take the way. It's to take it and to flee. We, we could have spent weeks on just that little bit, but I want to get into the little parables that Jesus has taught to help us understand prayer even more. The second thing that we talked about being simple, 
But there's also this, there should be a persistence in prayer, a persistence. He tells a story. He says, imagine, imagine you, you live in first century Israel. Your, your family has a one-room house, right? So your whole family sleeps in this one room. It's late, and you finally got the youngest child to settle down after numerous requests for water and stories, and they're stuffy. And they're finally settled down and asleep, and you finally put your head down on your pillow, and you hear some commotion outside. And it's your friend, it's your friend's voice, Dave. Dave, you wake? Well, I am now. Your first thought is, no, I don't have anything. That's embarrassing for you, right? There's this cultural expectation in the first century, right, that you are expected to feed any guests that show up at your house. I know we, growing up, we had some family friends that lived out of province, and they happened to be in Ontario a lot, and they tended to show up at our house unannounced right around dinner time, every time, every single time. Good, close family friends, mind you. So you do respond to your friends. Say, oh, sorry, like, look, I've got the kids down. We're getting up right now is going to disrupt everyone. Like, go away. But Jesus makes the point here that even though it's annoying, even though your family's asleep and you don't want to get up, and just because he's your friend, you're not going to get up. However, because your friend is so persistent, you would get up and give him whatever he needs. This is how we approach God in prayer, regularly, often. I mean, even later on, Jesus shares another parable about this, the widow and the judge, right? She comes before the judge with her request and doesn't get the answer she's looking for. So she keeps returning again and again and again. The judge in the parable gets so annoyed with her that he gives in and gives her what she's looking for, which suggests to us that our persistence may be enough for the Lord to grant our request as long as it's part of his will. I know we've all had prayers we've prayed over and over and over again, and, and we don't seem to be getting the answer we want. But the reality is, sometimes the answer we get isn't what we want. The Apostle Paul was given a thorn in his flesh. He says to us in, in 2 Corinthians, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me but he says, the Lord said this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul recognized that even though he'd been given this thorn that may have been hampering his ministry in some way, the Lord revealed to him that my grace is sufficient for you. He was persistent in his prayer. And it's not that God didn't answer his prayer. He didn't get the answer he was looking for. And this is something we've learned in these last couple of years is that no is an answer. But still, we keep on praying simply and persistently until God answers. Just remember that his answer may not be what we want. But we have to have the same attitude as Jesus in the garden on the night before he was crucified. He prayed, he asked his father, could you remove this from me? Could you take this away? And what's he say? Yet not my will, but yours be done. We ask. We are persistent. And it leads us to the, set, to the next bit. Is this, there's a boldness in prayer. Persistent 
and bold. Look at verses 9 and 10. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. How often do our requests not go fulfilled because we just didn't, simply didn't ask? Again, going to James, he says, You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. See, God knows our desires. God knows our wants, our needs. But think about this. If he was just to give us everything he knows we want without us persistently and boldly coming to him, would we recognize that as him doing it for us? Or is it just the way things go? See, part of our prayer is us putting ourselves under his care, under his uh, lordship. And so when we ask and we come back persistently and boldly, and when, when that prayer is answered, we recognize very clearly who it is that answered that prayer for us. So he says, ask, seek, knock, right? Ask, that's, that's prayer. Go to prayer and ask God. But then he says, seek and knock. What are those things? Those are actions we need to take, right? We need to go and look for it. Pray about it, yes. But then go and look. Pray about it, and then go knock. That's why we can be bold in our prayer. And, and we, we're bold in our prayer for another reason. That's because we pray in the name of Jesus, right? So we, often when we finish our prayers, we say, and, you know, we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. That's not just a phrase we use. We should be mindful about when we use that phrase. Because what we're saying is that, hey, everything we've just asked for, we come to you with these requests. We believe that we're asking these things and that Jesus would want these things to happen for us. That's what that means. Don't use that flippantly. But see, when we ask according to God's will, he's going to answer according to his will. And that's the last bit. There's answers to prayer. He says in, again, 11 to 13, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I mean, earthly fathers, earthly mothers, we, we want to give good gifts to our kids, do we not? We want to be that parent. God's the same. And he says here, even you evil fathers, right? Now, is he saying that we're all, every father is evil? No, but he's contrasting us with him. Compared to his goodness, yeah, we're evil. And even we want to give good gifts to our kids. So imagine how much more the father wants to give us good gifts. He wants to, re to reward or to re respond to our requests. But how much more delighted would he be to give us what he knows is best for us? For us to ask for those things. As Christians, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit already. But it says here, if we ask for the Spirit, how delighted he would be to give us that. Someone once asked me a question about the filling of the Spirit. Like, if I'm already filled with the Spirit, do I ask to ask for more filling, right? Jesus saying, ask for this. And some people have tried to explain this. Well, you can't really have more of the Spirit. If you've got the Spirit, you've got the Spirit. And they'll explain it with, like, a full glass of water and how if you have a full glass of water, 
you can't put any more in, right? It's full. The problem with that is that water and glasses are both physical. Think of it instead like a balloon, right? You can blow up a balloon a little bit, and it looks like it's full of air. But what can you do? You can put more air into the balloon, and the balloon gets bigger until the point it bursts and it scares your kids and your dog. But you can get more air in there. In the same way, I believe what Jesus is saying is we can have more of the Spirit if we just ask for the Spirit. I mean, think about Stephen in the, the New Testament, right? He, he, here he is. He's basically telling the religious leaders of the day, putting the guilt of the crucifixion of Jesus on them, tells them the whole history, their whole history, and how it lines and leads right up to Jesus, how they crucified him. He was already full of the Spirit. He's delivered this message to them, and then they hear this, and they can't stand it. So they take him, and they rush at him. They throw him down. They're, gonna, they're stoning him. And as they're stoning him, he says, it says, that, it says this in Acts, 7, Acts chapter 7, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In the midst of this, he's asking for more of the Spirit, and, and he, he says, Father, forgive them. I mean, I would need the Spirit in me in a huger way to forgive those people. When we do this, what we're doing is, is what Wayne Grudem writes. When we're asking for more of the Spirit, we are asking God for an event subsequent to conversion in which a believer experiences a fresh infilling with the Holy Spirit that may result in a variety of consequences, including greater love for God, greater victory over sin, greater power for ministry, and sometimes the receiving of new spiritual gifts. Who wouldn't want that? I mean, imagine if James North was a church in which everyone was praying for more of the Spirit. Asking God for something He wants to give us. I mean, if that were the case, what, what could the Spirit do through us? What could the Spirit do in us as a local church? As we're praying and begging for more of the Spirit. He could unleash us on this neighborhood, unleash us on this city, and empower us to do mighty things in his name. So prayer is meant to be simple, not complex. Don't overcomplicate it. It's meant to be persistent, but not flippant. It's meant to be bold. Standing, and we've been invited into the throne room of God to stand before him and make our requests. Trusting that the Father will answer according to his will. What I want to do is I want to close our time by actually walking through the Lord's Prayer individually. And as we do, I've got a couple of things I want to help you see as we go to that. If you find praying is difficult, I want to encourage you to make it a habit. But don't overcomplicate it. You know, it's better to pray short prayers than to pray no prayers. Does that make sense? Better to pray short prayers than to pray no prayers. And then over time, get consistent, and over time, increase that. Short prayers, I call them Nehemiah prayers. You know the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, right? He's cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, 
And he comes before the king one day to bring his, his food or his drink. And the king says to him, um, so like, why are you so downcast? Why are you so sad, Nehemiah? You've never been this way before me, in front of me before. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah's asked what the king can do for him. It says this, and the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, this is Nehemiah, and I said to the king, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. See what he did there? He prayed a short prayer. He's in the presence of the king. The king's asking him a question. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I asked the king. He made a bold request of the king, and the king actually ends up granting it. He didn't have time to go away for a short spiritual retreat or to his prayer closet. He had to act quickly. So he prayed to the God of heaven, and he asked. That looks like during our day is being aware of when we need the Lord to work in our lives. It's, it's asking him for help. Maybe it's just simply getting used to praising him for his beauty. You see a beautiful sunset. You see a beautiful rainbow. You see something amazing that God has done. Tell him. That's a prayer. That's a simple prayer, a Nehemiah prayer. But here's the thing. Nehemiah made that quick prayer. We need to go back to the beginning of Nehemiah. In chapter 1, we find out why he's so downcast. The fact that his city, his hometown, is in ruins. The wall is demolished. He hears this news, and we're told in verse 1 of Nehemiah 1, in the month of Kislev, doesn't sound like that's important, but, but bear this out. Nehemiah hears about this in the month of Kislev. And he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And he goes on to recount for us in Nehemiah 1 how he prayed, adoration, petition, confession, praying God's word back to him. And then that chapter closes, and we go into chapter 2. And chapter 2 begins with, in the month of Nisan, which means nothing to most of us because we don't know the Jewish calendar. Nehemiah prayed persistently for four months from Kislev to Nisan. So when the king asked him, what can I do for you? Nehemiah's been asking the Lord for it for four months. He already knew what he was going to ask when it came up. He prayed a simple prayer, but he also prayed a persistent prayer. Prayer is simple. Be persistent. Be bold. The Lord will answer according to his will. So let's do this. I'll ask you all just to bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's walk through this. And I'm going to say the first, each of these lines. And as I do, I want you to just take a couple of, few seconds, not very long, and just pray to God what that part of the, the prayer means for you, how that uh, relates to your own life, right? Let's pray together. Father, you are our Father, Lord. We thank you for, for watching over us, for caring for us. You are our creator. You are our sustainer. Hallowed be your name.
May you receive the honor that you're due. May we honor and respect your name. May we not use your name flippantly during our days. Your kingdom come. Jesus, we acknowledge that you are king. You are king in the kingdom already, and we are living in the kingdom as it is, but God, we pray that you would bring your kingdom into its fulfillment, that we might be citizens and be good citizens of the kingdom, acting and living in the ways that you want us to. May we do this even as we are on earth still. Give us each day our daily bread. Lord, we approach your throne of grace this morning. We recognize that you've already blessed us with so many blessings of our needs. May we not miss and neglect your work in our life already, but may our hearts be grateful for all that you do for us, all that you give to us. May we praise you for those things. And forgive us our sins. Even now, Father, as we consider what we are going to participate in shortly, would you forgive us those things that are uh, hampering our relationship with you? Would you bring to mind those sins we need to confess to you? Would you bring to mind any sin that we might need to confess to someone else in this room? That, Lord, we might be able to do what we need to do And would you forgive us for those sins? Lord, would you help us to forgive those who've sinned against us? Lord, may we not hold those sins over people's heads, but may we, would you help us to be open and willing and quick to forgive those we've sinned against or that have sinned against us. That we might continue on in right relationship with each other and with you. And lead us not into temptation. God, you are our protector. You are the one who protects us from sin. But would you, through your Spirit, make blatantly clear to us the times when we're being tempted and show us the way out. Show us the way out that we would understand how you are trying to help us. We pray all this, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who, with whom we are grateful for his sacrifice on the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.